Well, let's look into the scriptures this morning. Uh, and you can turn to Matthew chapter 28 once again. Last week we saw Paul defending his authority as an apostle. And I apologize today, I'm going to probably read my notes a lot more than normal. And the reason for that is to try to keep us on track. And maybe to be done a little bit earlier than we were last week. And the week before, and the week before, and the week before. So let's see if we can finish up just a little bit earlier today. Last week we saw Paul defending his authority as an apostle. Paul was seeking to build the church up in Corinth. That's why he wrote those two letters to them that we have in our Bible. They had, they had become wayward. They had departed from Christ in some ways. They were not following him as they should. And so Paul was seeking to set that right. But there was something that was in Paul's way. There was an obstacle as he was attempting to point them back to the right path. And that was that false teachers had come into that church and they were seeking to discredit Paul's authority as an apostle. And Paul recognized that if he were going to be able to edify and build up those saints in Corinth, he must have authority from Christ to do so. Paul isn't seeking so much in the book of 2 Corinthians to establish his authority because he hasn't lost it. Christ gave it to him and no matter what the false apostles say, Paul had not lost that authority that he had from Christ. Instead, what he's trying to do in the book of 2 Corinthians, particularly chapters 10 through 13, is he's seeking to justify why he's wielding this authority. Why is he stepping into their lives? I mean, the church at Corinth is operating, but Paul wants to send some truth in from outside. On what authority does Paul, what authority does Paul have to step in and say to them, you should be doing this? The false teachers have said, Paul has none. But Paul is nevertheless using that authority that he has from Christ to teach them. He's warning them that they must either listen to his letter and get into line, or he will have to come to them and exercise his authority that the Lord has given him to build them up. And twice he makes that point that the authority he's been given as an apostle is for their edification. God gave him that authority to edify and build them up so that they would come to more fully and faithfully follow Jesus Christ. And we also considered last week that if Paul could edify these saints without authority, if it's possible to edify someone without a measure of authority, then why does Paul go to such great lengths to vindicate and to justify his authority? It takes authority to truly build someone up in Christ because Christ is a great king. To help a person more fully and faithfully follow Christ, you must have authority from Christ to perform that work of edification. You must have Christ's own authority to speak to that person in Christ's stead, to urge them to follow the king, to point out to them where they are not following the king, to judge that the path they are on currently is the right path, or to encourage them in them, or to say, you're on the wrong path, brother. You need to come back over here. This is the path that the king would have us to walk in. In other words, we can't help others to follow Christ as a king unless we have authority from Christ to do so. And Paul possessed Christ's authority. He was sent by Christ. He was an apostle. But there aren't any apostles among us today. 
So who possesses Christ's authority on earth today to build up and to edify the saints? And I'm sorry, I told you to turn to Matthew 28, but we need to look at Ephesians 4 first. Okay, sorry about that. Ephesians chapter 4. Who possesses Christ's authority on earth today to edify and build up the saints? Well, if you look at verse 12, we've already seen building up the body of Christ in verse 12, right? God gives pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that the saints then, as they do the work of the ministry, build up the body of Christ. It takes authority to edify and build up the body of Christ, Paul tells us. And so then whoever Christ commands to edify and build up the saints must have that authority from him to do it. And so in Ephesians 4, we're seeing that the pastor teachers equip the saints to do the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. So who possesses the authority of Christ to build up the body? And as we read these verses, it seems like the pastors and teachers and the saints, they all possess it because they're all involved in building up the body of Christ. The pastor teaches the word of Christ in Christ's stead. It takes authority from Christ to stand up and say, this is what the Lord said. And the saints pick up that word that is taught and they run with it into each other's lives to encourage and exhort and admonish and instruct and model and reprove their fellow saints to build them up and to help them more faithfully and fully follow Christ. And this means then that we can understand something about the nature of the relationships in the church from these verses. We've looked at the elder-member relationship. Remember that in the triangle? All the commands that govern elders and members. All the commands that govern members and members. All the commands that govern members and their response to elders. All of these one another commands that we have in the New Testament. The relationships that they govern. That triangle that we saw. Apparently, these relationships are not simply relationships of friendship. We aren't just one big happy family in the church. Well, we are. We are one big happy family. But we're not just one big happy family. But there is something more to these relationships. There is a component of authority. And this is why elders are told to rule the flock. And this is why members are told to obey and submit to elders. This is why members are told to teach and admonish one another in Christ's stead. In other words, we can't just brush off the words of another brother or sister. They come to us with Christ's own authority to build us up. The scripture says we are to submit ourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5.21. The relationships we bear toward one another in the church are tinged with a component of authority. Christ's own authority to edify. And as we saw two weeks ago, the atmosphere in the church is supposed to be an atmosphere of love. The one another commands, if we summed them up, that's an atmosphere of love. By this, the world will know that we are Christ's disciples if we love one another. And so the relationships that we have in the church are supposed to be relationships of love, but also relationships of accountability. They're supposed to be relationships of kindness, but also relationships of watch care. 
They're supposed to be relationships of affection, but also relationships of authority over one another. Now, that's what it seems like this passage is saying. We all have authority from Christ to build one another up. Is this correct? Do relationships in the church possess this kind of love and authority? And there are passages of Scripture that answer that question more fully for us. And so now we'll go back to Matthew 28, to the Great Commission. Okay? And again, the question that we're looking at here is, Paul says it takes authority to edify. Who possesses that authority? We look at Ephesians 4. Apparently, all the saints possess that authority to build one another up. What does Matthew 28 contribute to this? Who possesses the authority to speak in Christ's stead, to teach me his words, to show me how to live it, to urge me to follow Christ, to point out to me when I'm not following him? Does any human being possess that authority upon earth today? Well, I want to observe at the outset as we look at the Great Commission, which is in verses 18 through 20 of Matthew 28, I want to observe at the outset that the Great Commission bristles with authority. The whole of the Great Commission has to do with authority, and specifically Christ's authority. He opens with it in verse 18. Look at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority, I think King James says power, the Greek word is the word for authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In the heavens above, the earth beneath, Christ is the head of all things. He has been given authority over everything. That much is clear to us. But every single one of the phrases in the Great Commission in verses 19 and 20, all of them draw deeply on the concept of authority. Let me show this to you, okay? So look at the first phrase there in verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Perhaps you've been taught that there's one main idea in the Great Commission, and there's three parts of how we go about doing that. The main idea is, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples. King James, I think, says teach, right? Go therefore and make disciples. That's the main idea. What's the Great Commission all about? Making disciples. How do you do that? Go, baptize, and verse 20, teach. There's three components to how we make disciples. We go. We baptize and we teach. What does it mean to make disciples? Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples. Well, a disciple is a protege. He's a pupil who submits himself to the teaching and conduct that's modeled by another. What does it mean to make a disciple of a king who has all authority? How do you do that? Well, the Great Commission tells us it involves baptizing and it involves, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, teaching them to obey everything the king commanded. That's what discipleship is. It's baptizing individuals and then teaching them to obey Christ. In other words, the Great Commission is not just about evangelism. Evangelism is a small part. Evangelism comes first and then baptizing and then teaching them to observe. But the Great Commission as a whole, making disciples, is not just about going out and preaching the gospel. It starts with that, but it's not complete until it comes all the way through to 
teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. It's not complete until the people who have believed our message in evangelism are actually obeying the king in all the things that he commanded. That's when the Great Commission is complete. And so to make disciples is to secure their obedience to the king. It's to go out into the world to say, Jesus has all authority. You must obey the king. You must be saved and by his Holy Spirit come to obey and observe all the things that Christ has commanded. And that's the tenor of this entire passage, as we're going to find out. John Broadus, who was a Baptist, who wrote a a really good book just helping us understand the Gospel of Matthew. He said this about what it means to disciple a person. To disciple a person to Christ is to bring that person into the relationship of pupil to teacher. Taking Christ's yoke of authoritative instruction, accepting what Christ says as true simply because Christ said it, submitting to Christ's requirements as right simply because he's the king. That's what it means to make a disciple. And so making a disciple is all about Christ's authority. Baptizing them, the next phrase in verse 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this this morning because we'll come back to baptism in a couple of weeks. But I just want you to notice several things here. Christ says that we are supposed to go and baptize them. Now that's really instructive because that means one person is baptizing and the other person is being baptized. In other words, it takes two to baptize. One person to baptize, the other person to be baptized. And that's really strange, actually, because Jesus is telling Jews to go and baptize. And the way that Jewish baptism worked, you can actually get on a plane and go to, go to Jerusalem today and find the Jewish baptismal pools at the end of the Temple Mount. They're called mikvah. The way that Jewish baptism worked is a Jewish man decided he was going to baptize himself. And so he went down into the pool, he dipped himself under the water, and he came back out. It only took one person to baptize if you were a Jew. But Jesus says, you go and baptize them. It takes two people to baptize as a Christian. Why is that? Well, look at the verse again, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If you're the one baptizing, you're supposed to baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And probably the best idea, what does it mean to baptize somebody in the name of? You ever heard somebody, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? What are they saying? Really what they're saying is, I, under the authority of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with their authority upon me, I baptize you. So that's what's true for the one who's baptizing. What about the person who's baptized? Well, he's baptized in the name of the Father and the Son. Go, therefore, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. For the one who's being baptized in the name of the triune God, that person then, by the act of baptism, is being declared to be a follower, a member of the family of the Godhead. When you see someone baptized in Christian baptism, you know that person's not part of the world. That person's part of the family of God. And so in baptizing someone, the one baptizing has the authority of the triune God upon him. And what's he doing in baptism? He's taking the one baptized and he's, a, he's connecting that person visibly with God in heaven. Who has the authority 
to take someone and put their stamp on him and say, this one belongs to God in heaven. Who has the authority to do that? And the final section of the Great Commission, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What does this entail? Christ says, there are all the things that I've commanded you. Now, if there's an all things that Christ has commanded, that means there's certain things inside that circle that are part of the all things, right? And it means there's certain things that are not part of that all things that Christ did not command. And there's a lot of people who run around today and they want to tell you what Christ commanded, but it's not actually part of what Christ commanded. Okay? So when Christ says there's an all things, you can get your arms around that teaching and say, this is what he commanded and this is what I need to pass along to you. And that means there's certain things that some people might try to pass off as Christ's teaching that are not part of the all things. Certain things that could be left out. Certain things that could be added. Whatever this all things is, Someone has got to have the authority on earth to say, these are the all things. And the rest of it's not. Someone's got to be able to go to a new convert and say, this is it. All of this. This is what Jesus commanded and this is what you must obey. It takes the authority of an Old Testament prophet to stand up and say, this is what Jesus commanded. Thus saith the Lord. Who has that kind of authority to go to individuals and say, this is what the king has commanded. These are the all things. And what about the next phrase? Teaching them to observe. Christ is not merely commanding people to lecture converts or to convey information to them. He's not merely teaching us that we should have a theology class that, that helps people to know what Jesus commanded. No, he says, teach them to observe. Teach them to obey all the things that Christ has commanded. And that requires authority to stand up in Christ's place and to tell them the king disapproves of your conduct. You've got to change. You're wrong. Who has the authority to go from one person to another and say, you're wrong. Get back on the track in Jesus name. This is the way that he would have you to walk. Who has that authority? And finally, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Once again, we're seeing here that the Great Commission deals heavily with authority. What Christ taught to the apostles while they were on earth, he now instructs them to pass along to converts. These are not simply suggestions. Filling the great, fulfilling the Great Commission means standing up in Christ's stead and saying, this is what the King has said. He commands you to walk in this way. It requires to saying to someone, you're out of line. Come back. Walk in this path. This is what Christ has commanded of us. Who has the authority to do that? Who possesses Christ's authority on earth to fulfill the Great Commission? To edify, to build up, to make disciples. Who possesses Christ's authority on earth? We don't have to guess at the answer to that question because Matthew has written a gospel that actually tells us the answer. And we're going to go to a passage in Matthew, earlier on in the book of Matthew in a little bit and find that. But let's just think for just a minute about what we've already seen in Matthew's gospel up to this point. If you start in Matthew 1, you read the whole thing through. It's a good exercise to sit down and read the whole thing through. Maybe in one sitting, it'll take about an hour and a half. Read the whole thing through all the way from Matthew 1 to Matthew 28. What do you see? Here's a little summation of what you see. Matthew opens his gospel with Jesus coming down from heaven. He's born of a virgin. 
And very quickly, we begin reading about Jesus going about and preaching the kingdom of God. He travels around Galilee, from Nazareth. He's preaching the kingdom of God. God, he says, God's kingdom has drawn near. It's close at hand. God's reign over humanity is, it's arrived. God as king is in your midst to rule. That's what he's proclaiming. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Why? Because the king has come. He is on earth. He walks in your midst. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. He is God come down in human flesh. And he begins to teach publicly. Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, Moses has given you God's law. You've heard that it was said unto you by Moses with God's own authority. This is the law of God that Moses has commanded. But I say to you, and Jesus includes some additional teaching as though he has authority from God to say, this is what heaven demands of you. Moses gave you God's word. I'll give it to you too. I have that level of authority. And then he goes about forgiving people's sins. Who can forgive sins but God only? The scribes ask. And they're right. Who has the authority to forgive people's sins except God only? You remember in the beginning, Adam and Eve sin. God places a curse of death upon us. And now blindness and lameness and deafness and, and, and demon possession and, and death itself. They are the penalty of God upon our sin. And yet Jesus comes along and delivers men from all of that. He removes God. Who has the authority to remove God's penalty from mankind? To deliver men from death. To deliver men from, from blindness and lameness. Jesus is acting like he's God himself come in human flesh. He is. And that's the way that he's acting. He's acting like he reigns over this thing. Like he has authority on earth. And when he stands up and teaches, that's what, the, that's what all the people say. This man teaches with authority, not like the scribes. Jesus is heaven's own authority walking around on earth in human flesh. To disregard Jesus Christ is to disregard the God of heaven. It is to reject God's own authority. And this is what the signs that he performs show about him. As we continue reading through Matthew's gospel, we find that Jesus dies. He rises again. And now in Matthew 28, he's just on the verge of returning to heaven. The king has come down for 33 years. He's walked amongst mankind. He's taught. He has forgiven sins. He has exercised the authority of God upon earth. The authority of heaven has come down upon earth, but now he's going back. Now he is returning to heaven. Who will speak on earth with heaven's own authority now? Who will teach the laws of the kingdom in the streets of the cities of the nations, just as Jesus has taught them in Jerusalem streets? The answer is that in the Great Commission, Jesus takes his authority and he delegates it. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He has come down from heaven with heaven's own authority. He has exercised it upon earth. Now he will return to heaven and he will exercise heaven's own authority in heaven. But what about on earth? There will be a power vacuum on earth. Who will teach? 
Who will admonish? Who will instruct? Who will help men to follow the king? It's quite easy when he walks around on earth. You just get in the line of 12 disciples behind him and follow the king. That's how you submit yourself to his authority. What about when he returns to heaven? Who possesses the authority to go about and make disciples of the king? Who possesses the authority to teach them what he has taught? Who possesses the authority to baptize them, to associate them with heaven? Who possesses heaven's own authority on earth now that Jesus has returned to heaven? Let's look at just a couple more things here in Matthew 28, and then we're going to find the answer to that question. Look at verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority... And we've seen that the whole Great Commission centers on the theme of authority, Christ's authority. So there's one theme of the Great Commission, authority. But look where this authority is exercised. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Heaven and earth, authority. Okay, there's another theme. Authority, heaven and on earth. And look at the last phrase of the Great Commission. Verse 20, second half of the verse. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Authority, heaven's own authority on earth, and I am with you always to the end of the age. Those three themes. There's another passage in Matthew's gospel that picks up those three themes and helps us to understand what's going on in the Great Commission. So let's turn back to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. And I'm going to read to you verses 15 through 20, okay? This is a passage on church discipline. If your brother sins against you, okay, so it's a brother, not necessarily referring to physical brothers, I think probably spiritual brothers is what we're going to find out is the best way to understand that to be. If your spiritual brother in Christ sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's what the Old Testament law commanded. Everything is established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell what to the church? Tell the whole situation to the church. That this man is out of line and he's not repenting. He's not listening. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Probably heard of the procedure of church discipline. Let's just look at it briefly. The idea is not so much to look at church discipline itself here. We can uh, talk about that later on. But I'm primarily interested in finding in this passage uh, who possesses Christ's authority on earth. So let's look at the procedure. You've got two brothers, and evidently, according to verse 17, they're both part of the same church. And one brother sins against another, 
So he's violated God's law. He sinned. And the brother who has been sinned against is to go and tell him his fault. He's supposed to do it privately. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And what's the goal in going and confronting your brother and telling him you've done wrong? The goal is restoration. Your hope and prayer is that your brother would listen and say, you're right, I am out of line. I have sinned against God. I've broken his law. I need to get back into line. Your goal is that he would listen and repent and you will have gained your brother back. What happens if he doesn't listen? If he doesn't listen, meaning he doesn't repent, he persists in his sin, he's going to keep going his own way, then take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And I think probably the best, the best idea there of what's going on is these two or three witnesses, these other people are there to make sure that what's going on here is actually a violation of God's law, that this man actually has sinned, that it's not just somebody who got a burr under his saddle and is going to go straighten his brother out and get him to agree with him and do his own thing. You've got two or three witnesses who are helping to make sure, yeah, this isn't just a personal difference. This is, we've got three brothers now and they've all examined the scriptures and they're all looking at this man and saying, yes, you really are out of line. We're all seeing this. So on the testimony of two or three witnesses, the man is called to repent. What happens if he refuses to repent? Answer, take it to the church. Tell the church. And the implication is here then, we're telling the church. Why? So that the church can all examine it. Everyone in the church has the opportunity to examine what Bob has been doing and saying, that's right, that is a violation of the king's command. Or, no, that's just a personal difference between Bob and Sam. And that's why Sam went in the first place. The church has the responsibility to examine this and to admonish Bob. Bob, get back in line. You're out of line. This is wrong. Repent. What happens if Bob won't listen to the church? That is the end of the road for Bob. Because the church is supposed to, if he refuses to listen even to the church, verse 17, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Treat that man like he's an unbeliever, like he's still in his sin. Do we permit unbelievers in the membership of churches? No. To treat a man who is part of the church as a sinner, an unbeliever, as a Gentile, as a tax collector means to remove him from the membership of that church. Now, it doesn't mean to shun him, turn him away. How would you treat an unbeliever? You'd go to him with the gospel. In other words, this is not a mean-spirited sort of a thing. This isn't like we're scrubbing the scum off the shower tub. <laughs> this is... We just can't continue to keep you as a member of this church and to say to the world, this person's a Christian because that's the only people we let inside the church as Christians. If we let you stay, we're saying you're a Christian, but you're not repenting. You're not acting like a Christian. And so we need to remove, remove you from church membership. And we're going to treat you now like an unbeliever. We're going to bring the gospel to you. You've got to repent. Jesus died for your sins. We're hoping to see you turn and return to Jesus Christ. Now, that process is very, very difficult, and it's very unpopular, particularly in a world like ours today. And the reason for that is this. Go back to verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. You got two people there. One of them is saying, 
you're wrong. And what's the other one saying back? Who are you to tell me what to do? Like, I'm my own person before God. And you're your own person. Like, let me live my life how I want to live. Isn't that the way that people would typically respond? If you went to the average person on the street and said, you know, what you're doing is wrong. Jesus Christ commands you to repent. What? It doesn't matter to me. I'm going to continue on in my own way. Who are you to tell me what to do, how I'm supposed to live my life? For the one person to go to the other and say, you're wrong, Jesus Christ commands you to repent. He's got to have authority to do that. To stand in Christ's stead and say, you're wrong. And yet that person doesn't possess ultimate authority. Why? Because if he doesn't listen to this man, take two or three. If he doesn't listen to the two or three, tell it to the church. And that's where we come to the end of the road. In other words, who possesses Christ's authority on earth to be able to say to a brother, you're wrong? And the answer is, we all do to an extent. But where does the authority ultimately rest? With the pastor? The church. Why? Because look at verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name. There am I among them. Christ is present when the church gathers. And so, the Holy Spirit being amongst them, indwelling them all, the word taught to them by elders, word and spirit. This is how Christ governs his church. And so what that means is, look with me at verse 18. I turned one page back too many. Matthew chapter 18, verse 18, whatever you, who's you? That's the church. Whatever the church binds on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus went back to heaven. He has authority on heaven, in, on, in heaven and on earth. How's his authority exercised on earth so that what happens on earth reflects Christ's own authority in heaven? And the answer is Christ delegated his authority to the church so that the church can come to a person who will not repent of their sin. The church can come to that person and say, Jesus Christ says you must repent. And if they won't repent, the church can say, with heaven's own authority, we cannot continue to regard you as a believer. We must treat you now as a Gentile and a tax collector. You are not a true follower of Christ. It takes a lot of authority, particularly when you consider that that man, the very fact that they're talking to him means he's still part of the church. He still thinks he's a Christian. But everyone else is looking at him and saying, that's not how a Christian lives. That's not the way you should be acting. Jesus Christ calls you to repent. And the person says, I don't care. I'm going to do my own thing. And the church has the authority then to say, no matter what you say, we will not regard you to be a believer. In other words, if you find yourself on that side of church discipline, sit up and pay attention because the church acts with heaven's own authority on earth, not infallibly, but where you have the word taught by elders, the congregation affirming that all of them indwelt by the spirit. Christ is in the midst where two or three are gathered. He is in the midst. Talk about where Christ takes up his throne on earth. It's in the church. And so when the church teaches authoritatively all the things that Christ has commanded, you must follow. 
When the church baptizes you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they have the authority to identify you with the triune God, to receive you into their membership, to say this person is a follower of Christ. Or, no, this person is not. They're not acting the way that a kingdom citizen should. They are not aligning themselves with Christ's authority. So in Matthew 28, we saw heaven's authority on earth to make disciples, to go, to baptize, to teach. And how did the Great Commission end? I'm with you. Matthew 18, heaven's authority on earth to go, to tell, to excommunicate. And how does that end? With Christ's own presence. In other words, Matthew 28, 20, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Has Christ been with, with any of us always till the end of the age? Well, Peter, he hasn't lasted to the end of the age. He died a long time ago and Christ wasn't with him till the end of the age. But he is present with his church to the end of the age. In other words, Christ has given the Great Commission to the church to go and to make disciples, to build people up, to teach them all the things that Christ has commanded. And he's with them, with his authority, heaven on earth, to go and make disciples for the king. And what about if someone says, you're teaching me all the things that Christ has commanded, but I'm not going to follow that. The church has the authority to then say, this person, we do not regard them to be a believer. They're not acting like a Christian should. So we can come back and discuss church discipline and the procedure and all of that, the spirit in which it should be carried out at a later point. But at this point, I just want to, I want to stop here and I want to look at some implications of what we've seen now for the church. Okay, What does all of this mean? The first thing this means is the gospel changes people. If you say, I'm a Christian, I have received the gospel, then it is reasonable to expect people like that to repent when confronted of sin. And if they won't, you say, we don't believe that you're a true follower of Christ. We don't believe you have the gospel. We're going to treat you like a Gentile and a tax collector. Why? Because for a person to say, I'm a follower of Christ, he has given me eternal life, means he has the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was given to cause us to walk in his ways. So when you see a person who doesn't and they won't repent, what does that tell you about their profession of faith in Christ? The gospel changes people. If it doesn't, you can't practice church discipline. The promise of the new covenant is that God will put his spirit in all of us to cause us to walk in his ways. So I've got eight implications. There's the first one. The gospel changes people. The second one is biblical love deals with sin. So the gospel changes people. We can expect them to repent. It's not an unreasonable expectation to go to someone who says, I'm a follower of Christ and say, hey, you, you're, you're, you're sinning. You need to change. It's not unreasonable to expect them to repent because that's what happens with Christians. They repent. The gospel changes people. Secondly, biblical love deals with sin. What's the atmosphere in the church? Love. The one and other commands. And yet if your brother sins, we don't just sweep that under the carpet. If your brother sins, we deal with sin. In, a, in an atmosphere of love, there is a component of authority that enables us to deal with sin. 
We aren't just all buddies in the church who receive one another as we are and okay with each other no matter how else someone else acts. Christ is the head of the church and we must order our lives as Christians according to his ways. And so when someone is out of line, we don't just sit idly by. Does this mean that every single infraction we address it? It cannot because Proverbs says love covers over a whole bunch of sins. <laughs> Cover over a whole bunch but where there's something so conspicuous and visible and definable, would you go to a brother and say, you know, brother, I think you're really struggling with pride. Would a pastor stand up and say, we need to excommunicate brother Bob because he's proud. <laughs> there's a lot of sins we can just cover over and pray for each other. And you might say, you know, Bob, I think you're struggling with pride, but we'd never excommunicate somebody for that. But what about something that's really visible, that calls into question publicly whether or not this person's actually a Christian. At that point, we don't just let sin go by, we address it because biblical love deals with sin. The third implication is this, Christians, what does it mean to be a Christian? Christians are fundamentally repenters. Christians are fundamentally repenters. I just want to ask you four questions now. If someone sins, should you treat them like an unbeliever? I hope not, because we'd be treating all of us like unbelievers. If someone sins, does being a Christian mean he never sins? There's plenty of sins to go around in the church that we get to cover by love. Okay? Being sinless is not the definition of Christianity. Christianity is someone who repents. If someone sins, is he to be regarded as a Christian? Yes. If someone sins and two or three confront them and they refuse to repent, are we still to regard them as a Christian? Yes. Because we do not treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector until the church has rendered its decision. What about if someone refuses to repent when the whole church is calling them to repent? We treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector because they will not repent under the highest of Christ's authority on earth. How then can they be rightly related to Christ in heaven if they refuse his authority upon earth? And so for that reason, when someone refuses to repent in the presence of the entire church, we treat them like an unbeliever. What about if they continue to insist? I know I'm living in adultery and I know I'm not repenting, but God knows my heart. I'm a Christian. Do we say, that's okay. We regard you as a Christian too, but we just can't keep you in the church. No, we regard them as a Gentile and a tax collector with Christ's own authority. That is a lot of authority. And no single human being possesses that but Christ alone and the gathered church under his word, under his spirit. The third, the, sorry, fourth, fourth implication is this. We possess the authority of Christ to confront sin. We possess the authority of Christ to confront sin. to admonish one another, to instruct, to teach, to correct one another. These are all the one another commands we've seen. We have the authority from Christ to do that. 
We have the authority to go to someone who is in sin and to seek to bring them back. To tell them, look, brother, you're wrong. You have the authority in a world like ours that says, just let me live my life. Who are you to tell me what to do? You have the authority from Christ in the bounds of the church to go to someone and say, can I talk to you about what you're doing? You're out of line. Can we pray together? You need to repent. You have Christ's own authority to do that. And if they won't repent, if they won't repent the church has the authority to admonish someone publicly and say, you can't keep living in open immorality and call yourself a Christian. You must turn away from that. Christ calls you to. The fifth implication is that the local church possesses the ultimate authority of Christ on earth. The most important words there are local church. The local church possesses the ultimate authority of Christ on earth. Not the pastor. Not any single one of the members. Not any bishop or pope. The local church gathered together in his name is where Christ is present in the midst with all of his reigning authority. The local church possesses the ultimate authority of Christ upon earth. This means that if a pastor thinks church discipline ought to be exercised, he's got to convince the whole congregation. If Brother Sam has confronted Brother Bob, Brother Sam doesn't get to treat Brother Bob like an unbeliever until the whole church has rendered their judgment. So this will be number seven, I think, two, four, six. This will be implication number six, three to go. This means then, or maybe I'll just shorten it for you so you don't have to write all this down. Church discipline operates on the local church level. Church discipline operates on the local church level. It's the church, the local church, that exercises Christ's authority over its members. Our responsibility is not to get on Facebook and set every Christian in the world straight. Our responsibility is not to look at another church down the road and say, Bob in that church is out of line. I've got to fix it. Church discipline, the authority of Christ, operates on the local church level. Every church is responsible for its own members to exercise Christ's own love and authority over its members. To train them to live godly lives. Seventh implication... This is a bit longer to write out. Maybe you can think of a way to shorten it. Sorry. We gather as the church on Sundays because in the gathered church is Christ's authority. So Sunday gathering equals Christ's authority, you could say, or something like that. And I'll explain what I mean. When God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, what was he saying about Jesus of Nazareth? And Peter tells us, let all the house of Israel know for certain that this Jesus whom God raised up from the dead, he has made him Lord and Christ. And that's why subsequent to his resurrection, Christ says, I've got all authority on heaven and earth. The man born in Bethlehem, this man now is Lord of all things. How? By the resurrection. The church gathers on the day of resurrection. The church that gathers on the day of resurrection has Christ's own presence in its midst. The church that gathers on the day of resurrection 
with Christ's own presence, possesses the authority of the risen Christ. That's why we gather on Sunday. We gather on Sunday. I, don't, I, I personally don't think church discipline should ever be enacted on a Wednesday evening Bible study. Because it's not the day of resurrection. The day of resurrection is Sunday. The day of resurrection that set Christ as Lord of heaven and earth is Sunday. That's the day the church gathers together under the authority of Christ to exercise it towards its members. And the last one is then, and this one I'm sorry again is a bit long. But church membership is recognizing and judging one another to be believers. Church membership is recognizing and judging one another to be believers. Any person we admit to church membership, we're making a public statement about them. This person is a follower of Christ. Any person we exclude from church membership, we're making a public statement about them. This person is not a follower of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean the criterion for church membership is? If you want to join a church, what must be true of you? You've got to be a follower of Christ. That means you've got to be a believer. That means you've got to live a life of following Jesus Christ in the power of God's Holy Spirit. So if someone doesn't do, doesn't have either of those, oh, I don't really believe in Jesus. Church member? Nope. Yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I think I can live in sin. Nope. Followers of Jesus Christ, people who repent at his command. That is what it means to be a follower of Christ. That's what it means to be a member of church. I just sum all of this up here. So all of those one another commands, those commands governing our relationship to elders, elders to members, members to members. Remember all those commands we've looked at? They're all commands that we could put under the heading of love. Does Christ love his flock as a shepherd? Does he expect the under shepherds that he's put, the men he's put over the church to love the flock? All of those commands go under the category of love. All the one another commands go under the category of love, but they also go under the category of authority because Christ is a king. He is a loving king. So that's why we have commands like obey your leaders and submit to them. That's why we have commands like teach and admonish one another. That's why we have commands like submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there are two components of the atmosphere of a church. There's the component of love and the component of authority. Do those two fit together? Our world, it doesn't seem like they do anymore, does it? For you to say, I love you means there's no rules, right? For me to say, I love a homosexual person means I can't impose any guidelines on that. How do love and authority coexist only in one person, Jesus Christ, and in his church? So affection and authority go together. Kindness and watch care, love and accountability, they go together. Membership in a church is a matter of love and authority. Christ's own love, love as I have loved you, he says. Christ's own authority, where two or three are gathered, I am present in the midst. Life in Christ then, let's try to sum this up. Life in Christ, what does it mean to be a Christian? Life in Christ is life in the body of Christ. There's no Christian who is not a part of the body of Christ, the invisible body. 
And that's why, as Christians, if you're a Christian, you ought to join yourself to a visible body of Christ. Life in Christ is life in the body of Christ. But what does it mean to live in the body of Christ? Day by day. How do I live as part of the body of Christ? That becomes real for us when we submit ourselves to membership in the body of Christ. When we submit ourselves to church membership, we experience from other members the love of Christ. When we submit ourselves to church membership, we let them correct us and admonish us and rebuke us and encourage us and instruct us. And in that, we are submitting ourselves to Christ. Elders teach us in Christ's stead. What is it to submit yourself to the word that the elder teaches? It is to submit yourself to Christ's word. Insofar as he's teaching Christ's word, to submit yourself to the teaching is to submit yourself to Christ. Other members admonish us with the authority of Christ to submit yourself to them. Yes, brother, you're right. I need to repent. Thank you for calling that my twine. That is to submit yourself to Christ. To submit yourself to the elders, to church membership by entering into that world of admonition and instruction, edification and encouragement is to enter the world where Christ himself is admonishing you, instructing you, edifying you, encouraging you. Christ is a great king. He calls us to submit ourselves to him, to follow him. What does that look like? It looks like being taught by elders. It looks like being admonished by brothers. And then obeying and doing it. That's what it means to follow Christ. And then turning around to help others in the church do the same thing, to follow Christ as well. Submitting ourselves to the authority of Christ's body is submitting ourselves to Christ. And one more verse, and then we're done. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We looked at this verse a couple of weeks ago. I think at this point it will make a little bit more sense to you. Ephesians 5.21 Submitting to one another. Authority in that, right? In submission. If you submit yourself to one another, you're recognizing that each person has authority over you in the church. Submit yourselves in the church to one another out of reverence for Christ. To submit yourself to the admonition, the instruction, the correction, the rebuke, the encouragement of a brother in Christ. To say, thank you, I needed that. Yes, thank you for calling me back. Thank you for pointing, out, pointing that out. Thank you for teaching me that, for showing me that from the scriptures. Submit yourselves to each other out of reverence for Christ. We can thank the Lord that he has made it possible for us to follow him and really given us pretty clear direction on what that means and uh, this means that no single human being save Christ has authority over me but Christ has put his authority in the local congregation and so we hear his voice through the shepherds he places over us we hear his voice through the members who admonish teach us correct us admonish rebuke encourage us when you come and another brother or sister says, let me share with you a passage of scripture. You can take this person out, put Christ in his stead, and you can receive that as from Christ himself for you. It is how Christ cares for his body, the church, through one another. We're to love one another 
as Christ has loved us. So in the love of brother to brother and sister to sister, that is Christ's own love to you. That is what it means. So you show it and you receive it. That's what it means to be a member of a church. Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ, for giving to him a place far above all rulers and authorities and powers. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Thank you for changing our hearts to love him, to submit to him, to call him our Lord and our Savior. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us grace to live like a follower of Christ. He has told us what that means. He has called us to help one another to follow him. And I pray you'd give us grace to do that. And we ask in Christ's name. Amen.